This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And last night on Fox, Senator Lindsey Graham displayed not only his indignation, but offered an explanation, I think, for his indigestion. Here's what I think. Amy Klobuchar should apologize to Judge Kavanaugh and his family for being part of a schmear campaign I haven't seen. A schmear. A schmear of cream cheese on this everything bagel of a confirmation hearing. A schmear. Well, why not schmear? You got Boof, you got Ralph, you got schmear, you got Squee. Remember those guys? Squee actually comes up in the letter that Kavanaugh wrote to his fellow party-hardy 18-year-olds about renting a beach house during Beach Week. New York Times reported on that letter. So in the letter, he goes to the uh, nudge-nudge routine. I'll read you some of it. I think we are unanimous that any girls we can beg to stay there are welcome with open dot, dot, dot. His ellipse, not mine. And then he says the danger of eviction is great. And that would suck because of the money and because this week has big potential, interpret as wish. And the postscript of this letter reads, as a warning to whoever arrives first, they should, quote, warn the neighbors that we're loud, obnoxious drunks with prolific pukers among us, advise them to go about 30 miles. Now, the only reason this is relevant to the facts at hand isn't that he was a drinking puker as a teen. It's that he confidently says he wasn't a belligerent blackout drunk. But can you be so confident if you were always drinking to the point of booting, ralphing, boofing? Sorry, maybe not boofing. Trying to help old Barry O'Kavanaugh there. The other relevant item to the allegations put forth by Christine Blasey Ford are there in Kavanaugh's own handwriting, pretty much how he signs the letter, and it might contradict his own sworn testimony. The pseudonymous Bart O'Kavanaugh, the hard-partying character in Mark Judge's book. He was asked about this under oath by Senator Leahy. Here's that exchange. Are you... Bart Kavanaugh that he's referring to. Yes or no? That's You'd have to ask him. Okay, that's not perjury. But a more honest, helpful answer might have been, it was a nickname. The letter that I just read to you is signed Bart. It is literally signed F-F-F-F-F Bart. The five Fs, according to Michael Avenatti, whose client Julie Swetnick seems not to be adding that much believable testimony to the question of confirmation. The five Fs, Avenatti says, is a crude sexual phrase. But according to Kavanaugh, FFFFF was an in-joke about his pal Christopher Garrett, a.k.a. Squee. Squee was reported to have uh, stuttered his Fs when drunk, always when drunk. Now, I'd have said, oh, the Fs, that's uh, our, our group code, fidelity, fairness, friendship, and financial frugality. But he went with Squee stuttered, which brings me to the nickname thing. I think it's hurting Kavanaugh. You got Squee, you got PJ, you got Rondo and the Vark. In the cool light of 40 years distance, all friend group nicknames seem suspect. No friend group nicknames seem like a bunch of guys or ladies and guys that you'd want on the Supreme Court. Even the nicknames among actual Supreme Court justices might raise an eyebrow. So on the Burger Court, you got Potsy, Deputy Dog, Wizard, the Lone Ranger, All Good, Harry the Horse, Loophole Lewis, and Wild Bill. Would you trust the country's decisions to those guys? And they're pretty good. I mean, some of them tried to uh, ban the illegal bombing of Cambodia. And I want you to know that three of those nicknames I read, literally actual nicknames of the actual justices, probably four, though I couldn't confirm that Potter Stewart was called Potsy, but he had to have been, right? 
Look, my point here is that listing your high school or college friends with their demeaning nicknames will not help you later in life. I mean, I could tell you about the time in college that I was hanging out with, uh, let's see, it was me, Gonzo, Quimby, Danny New, and Droopy Dog. It sounds off kilter, right? You're a little, you're a little worried about what might go on. There's some menace in the air. And actually, every one of those names, when you think about them, they're beloved cartoon characters, except for Danny New. There's always that one guy in the group where you use his full name, you know, like I could tell you that I was hanging out with uh, Cadaver, the Big Swede, Danny New, Butlint, and Gleek. Now, I, I want to I report to you now that all those guys, real guys, they're all pillars of the community. Uh, some are members of the bar. A couple are fathers of daughters. Oh, wait, so is Brett Kavanaugh. I guess my college friends are never going to get confirmed to the Supreme Court. If only back then we hadn't called them Gleek and Lint and Sleestack and Moon Chi Chi and Jub Jub and Milk Fed Veal and Toucan and Caboose and Baba Booey. So here's my advice. If you know a teenager who's about to nickname his friend group, think to the future. Look around you. Notice all the squeeze and the gleeks and the Baba Booies, the Baba's Booey, and rebrand them with an eye toward future respectability. Horshack, I now dub thee Minister of the Exchequer. And you over there drooling in the corner, Babar. We shan't call you Babar. You are henceforth Pope Innocent VII. And Shemp, you're not Shemp. We'll call you Booker Prize Shortlist D. That's my advice. Elevate. Don't denigrate. Also, don't drink so much that you can't credibly claim that you didn't black out when accused of a sexual assault. That too. That's good advice too. You know, I'll even go further. Don't sexually assault anyone. Don't drink so much you can't remember if you sexually assaulted anyone. And then the thing with the nicknames. Also, Roe versus Wade, you should vote to keep Roe versus Wade. That might seem beside the point in this little litany of advice, but you know what? If you do that one simple trick, all the rest of the advice might not even matter. And this has been the debaucherous adolescence of possible future justice. Brett Kavanaugh offers life advice for all of us. On the show today, Mike reads a huge New York Times Trump tax article, so you don't have to. But first, Rebecca Traster, the writer for New York Magazine, is out with a new book that couldn't be more relevant if it were shouted from the rooftops by aggrieved defenders of the founder's original intent. Men are rewarded for their anger. Women are punished. But women, says Traster, need to reclaim their well-founded rage. Rebecca Traster is here, and she's good and mad. Rebecca Traster is here. We have been, I have to tell you, we'll be airing this uh, now, today, when you're hearing it. But when we're recording, it is in the middle of the Christine Blasey Ford Kavanaugh hearings. And we have been quelling over her performance. We've been laughing at some of the ridiculousness of it. And so this is why, when I look at the name of her new book, Good and Mad, I wonder, uh, Rebecca doesn't seem to be either of those things. Well, maybe the first. (laughs) Good and Mad, the revolutionary power of women's anger. Have the hearings that we're watching now, have they made you angry? Of course. They're livid, livid, beyond livid, shaking with anger, shaking with anger. Okay. I have felt some, you tweeted out, are any men watching this tearing up? I tweeted to you close. I haven't been angry necessarily. What makes you angry about them? Oh, the the spectacle, the fact that 
that this has to be done, that that there is this, I mean, as I settled in, even before anybody began speaking, and I, of course, I saw so many, so many of my friends, ever, most people that I know and work with, and of course, all the people I'm reading on social media, who are sitting in and settling in to watch this person's experience of pain and trauma put on public display yeah. and interrogated, and we knew that there would be an attempt to discredit and rip her apart and, and all of this, but just the fact that she had to lay it all out. And, you know, my friend Aminatou So yesterday had a thread on Twitter about what we ask women to do when we ask for their receipts of pain, like to come out again and yes. again and tell their stories. And there are so many examples of this. And one of the things that I write about in the book are the many instances in which part of the process of, of social change involves making visible injustice, and that often means violent injustice. Yeah. So, for example, Mamie Till choosing to have an open casket funeral for her son Emmett after he is brutally murdered after a, a, a right. white woman alleges that he made a pass at her and he's beaten and left in a river. Mamie Till decides to have an open casket funeral. The the live streaming of the shootings and, and murder of African-Americans by police, by the same token, the way that even Me Too or in the wake of the Donald Trump Access Hollywood tape, one of the reactions that women who were furious that this was the Republican nominee who had admitted, it wasn't even an mm -hmm. allegation, admitted on a tape that he grabbed women against their will... They part of their angry push toward we need to change this world in which this is acceptable had to involve them telling their stories in this hashtag campaign. The first time I was right. groped or assaulted. We have seen that behavior repeated again and again, certainly during Me Too, when so much of that was about the revelation of of pain. This process it is, it's painful, and the fact that we have to do it again and again with the looming possibility over our heads that just like when we did it last time, Donald Trump was elected anyway, and everybody can be going through this again, and Brett Kavanaugh may well be confirmed to the Supreme Court where he will be in a position to make law that will determine our rights, protections, and opportunities for another generation. That is enraging. Right. So your book was so interesting to me. I think we agree on almost all of um, the facts and the policies. And then it's not about disagreement, but I was interested in why you've come to embrace anger. Well, I think that I write in the book that it doesn't always, that it, A, it can't be faked, and yeah. B, that it doesn't always serve my purposes or um, in many cases, anger can redound negatively. A big a big part of the book is looking at the ways in which women are penalized, and this is especially true and true in different ways for women of color, um, poorer women, more economically vulnerable women. Women are penalized for their anger all the time, and that doesn't just mean that they risk being fired or not getting a promotion or getting arrested or being incarcerated or being killed if they show anger or challenge the system. It also means that sometimes rhetorically, as you say, it backfires. People, When people hear a woman's voice raised, in anger, they are very likely to assume that the words that are coming out of her mouth are irrational, never mind if the anger itself um, derives from a 100% rational, reasonable, valid objection to a right. power abuse. That said, uh, keenly aware of those costs and, and the ways in which it's not always rhetorically useful, I was very careful in my writing for a lot of years as a journalist um, to cover the sharper points of my anger. And then I do write in the book about how on a couple of instances where I just 
stopped. I just could not care less what anyone thought of how angry I was in those moments. These are very distinct moments in my career. I have written out of pure uncut anger. And that, yes, a couple of times I have found that that has been wildly powerful as a communicative tool. And that's something that doesn't mean always. And I write in the book that, in fact, there are several instances during Me Too. I wrote a column that was just blisteringly furious about a particular incident in the midst of those four months. And it was just absolutely spittingly livid. And uh, my editor said to me, no, we're not going to, we're not going to, this is not going to serve you well. And I listened to her because I do know that if I misjudge, you know, the misjudgment can, can really do damage to the point you're going to make. So I'm acutely aware of those. But one of the things I learned there and that I began to learn as I looked at the history of social movements that have been transformative in this country is that all those things that tell women not to raise their voices in anger are actually part of the mechanisms that suppress their power to begin to call for change. That is true. Because if you silence women who are angry and you keep them from talking to each other, in part by telling them that their anger is going to backfire on them, that they're going to seem irrational, ugly, infantile, performative, then they don't get angry and they often remain quiet and then they're inaudible to each other. However... When they raise their voice in anger in a way that becomes audible to another woman who shares their perspective but has never sort of dared to voice it, then those women can begin speaking to each other. And when they begin speaking to each other, they can begin cooperation. And that can lead to organizing, to coalition, to allyship, right? And I saw such a live, in-person example of this when I went to Georgia around the John Ossoff campaign in June of 2017 when there were all of these suburban women who'd been kind of politically disengaged, Democrats in mostly red suburbs, white middle-class suburban women who had always kept their politics quiet. They were Democrats in in Republican neighborhoods. Many of them spoke to me. They'd never put out a lawn sign. They'd never talked about the fact that, you know, they were Democrats. And they hadn't done anything activist around, for example, the Hillary Clinton campaign or any other Democratic campaigns because the discouragement that they'd just be the crazy liberals and, you know, the skunk at the, at the party was so strong that they hadn't raised their voices. And they had assumed that Hillary was going to win because she had all the power. After she lost... And they were shocked and angry. Many of them, they just some described cursing freely in public for the first time. They were so livid that they just started, you know, uttering profanities. <laughs> some of them were so mad that they cried at school drop-off and saw other women crying out of anger, right, and, and grief. Um, and they began to talk to each other. Like when they raised their voices with the anger that they felt after Donald Trump won the presidency, they became visible to each other in, as the neighbors. And yeah. then they, be, they like, joined into visible chapters. And then they became organizers and canvassers and volunteers and fundraisers. And some of them became candidates. Yeah. And that's the perfect example of, like, what the incentive is to, to discourage women from being publicly angry. Because if women are publicly angry, they can hear each other and then work together. So before I asked you about the costs of your anger as a writer or the benefits of it, and you answered, which I think is demonstrably true, that if you if a woman comes off as angry, her good arguments aren't heard. But I meant actually something slightly different, which is do you ever think it it made your arguments a little worse, that the anger got in the way of clear thinking? Well, I'm sure there are, I certainly have written my share of arguments that could have been phrased better in my 15 years as a journalist. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. That's an interesting question. Another way to ask it is I – look, you don't have to 
right to me, but I thought you kind of reached out and dragged me along. And I would say, oh, you know what kind of feminism I like? I like I like Hannah and I like uh, Noreen Malone. I like those guys from The Waves. And I think Rebecca Traister is my favorite writer. And in the last two years, you haven't not become, in the last two years, you haven't <laughs> like fallen you off. Little, I like you a little less because you, you were so angry. <laughs> I, I just think that there's been a lack of humor, which you would talk about rounding off the edges. And I wonder if you, you know, if it, what you're not that you give a damn what I think, but if you're if you look back and assess those previous works as being less good than they could have been because they were less angry. I think that there have been changes in this country in the past two years that have probably sapped my stores of humor. Yes. I should also say there is this moment where I'm writing a column and I'm so livid that I just don't fucking care if anybody I just don't care. Just fuck them. I'm going to I'm going to write what I have to say and I'm not going to make it funny and I'm not going to and I did it and it and it went viral. I really want to stress that I I was surprised by that at the time and I thought I thought those thoughts like oh, I'm just going to say what I think and not care and in fact that was the meta point of the column I don't fucking care if you like it. Yeah. Um but at the time that is not that's actually not the origin of how we got to this book. I didn't think about anger as a strategic rhetorical device for me or nor did I think about it exactly as the framework for the politics I was covering except to acknowledge it here and there I was writing about it all the time yeah. but I wasn't thinking of it as a sort of organizing principle until I decided to write this book which was years after that column and as I was writing the book and I looked back at my own relationship to anger in my writing then I was able to make out this oh I remember when I wrote that column and I thought my god uh, who knew anger went over so well or was such a communicative tool? But it's not like at that point I was just like, well, now I'm going to be angry, lady. Right? No, it was no. Like, oh, it wasn't, I didn't right. get that idea from the book. Right. So, look, I, I had talked about this recently with humor and actually because of the <laughs> the brief respite of some ridiculous news cycle last week, I was able to repost a piece I wrote for New York Magazine about Muppet sex from the, <laughs> from the summer of 2015. And I can't even imagine a world where I got to write about Muppets having sex. But that was like truly, that was a column that I wrote a couple years ago. And listen, this, we don't have a lot of room for Muppet sex right now, or at least I don't, given my job. Tell, tell that to Kermit. Right. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> I have one last question, which is you say that you doubt a lot of the research on anger being bad for you. Mm. Interesting. Tell me about well, that. Well, the anger. It's only this is a this is a very this is a passing moment in my book. Mm-hmm. At the, and in part, I almost regret including it because it's lots of people ask about it. And it yeah. really was a sort of very personal, very unusual observation. So when I started writing this book and it was a book that was. It, the plan was I want to give anger its place. I want to suggest that it is politically important, that it has historically been politically important, that it is often the opposite of what people cast it as. It is rational. It is righteous. It is crucial. It is politically consequential. So I was writing this book sort of in defense of women's anger. However, when I started writing it, I had very much absorbed all kinds of messages about what anger does to you, right? I think we all absorb yeah, them, right? Yeah, yeah. It's bad for you. It sure. raises your blood pressure. Cortisol or you something. Stress, you stress. grind your yeah. teeth and and it makes you, you get a furrow in your brow and all this <laughs> stuff, right? Like angers, we understand this. And I got that on a personal level, right? So I write this book. I had to write it very quickly because I decided that I wanted to publish it quite quickly. And... Um, I start to write the book and I write it over a course of four months. And as I'm finishing and I'm writing the conclusion, I have this kind of 
very personal, individual revelation, which is that the four months in which I've been writing this book, which is super stressful, super stressful because I had this short deadline. Also, I am deeply invested in what is happening politically in the world. You know, I have two little kids. There are all kinds of reasons for me to feel stress. And yet, the four months in which I was writing this book were kind of some of the healthiest I can remember in my adulthood. I slept really well. I My thoughts were clear. My relationship with my husband was really terrific. My I wanted to exercise. I was eating well. Like, I was just sort of physically healthy. And yeah. I was... I was thinking about that. <laughs> and my personal observation was that having had this outlet for my anger, and more than that, having me taking other women's anger seriously had been physically great for me, right? And I really, as soon as I write this in the book, it's a couple paragraphs where I describe this because I thought it was just worth mentioning personally because I had so absorbed the idea that it's just bad for you. Feeling angry mm-hmm. is bad for you. But here was this project that was devoted to anger and to working through anger, expressing anger, making sense of it and taking it seriously, not just my own, but anger throughout history, other women's anger, anger at me, which was part of this, you know, part of this project. That I just wanted to challenge the degree to which even I had absorbed that anger is by its nature bad for you. I do not disagree that having a lot of anger can correspond to those symptoms that people talk about. But I think that for a lot of people, it's about the variety of pressures applied that that force you to keep it in, swallow it, sit on it, feel like you can't get it out because you're going to be not taken seriously or made into a villain or put yourself in danger. And, you know, so you clench and that's when you grind your teeth and have really high blood pressure and feel this enormous stress. And this is not, I write in the book and I cannot stress this enough, my observation on this matter is in no way meant to convey some kind of self-help strategy like go out there ladies and be your angry selves because my opportunity in getting to write this book is so unusual and there are really steep penalties out there for women who express their anger. And so I'm not suggesting, oh, we got to, everybody should just go out and, and express your anger and you'll, you know, have great sex and, you know, sleep well at night, right? That is totally not what I'm trying to say here. I wanted to note it as sort of a correction to thinking that was so widely absorbed that even I had absorbed it, but also to suggest that part of what we clear, to my mind, what we clearly have to do, and this is the larger political argument of the book, is take the anger of other women seriously. We need to work to change the system that, as it currently exists, pressures women to keep their anger inside. And part of how we ch- how do you change a whole system? How do you change a structure? Well, part of what we're changing is how we hear the anger of women. Um, how we whether we're curious about it, whether we understand it to be politically serious and politically consequential, or whether we dismiss it or write angry women off as crazy or if they're angry at us say, "Oh, they're just nuts." And we have to start altering not just how not just, "Oh, we all need to express our anger." No, we need to start listening to the anger of other women differently than we have been. And that's the sort of conclusion that I reached there. The cathartic cleansing power of released anger. (laughs) And our prescription is to read and buy Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by New York Magazine writer for The Cut, Rebecca Traster. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Good to meet you.
And now the spiel. The Times is out with an over 14,000 word expose on how Donald Trump got his wealth. The phrases Trump steak, Trump university, and Trump vodka are not mentioned in those 14,000 words. What is mentioned over and over is the fortune amassed by Fred Trump, Donald's father, let us say, by often using hard-nosed methods. And also the portion of that fortune that was passed on to Donald and his siblings by, let's say, fraudulent means. Hold on to that word, fraudulent, because it plays into the one criticism of the long and exhaustive piece. It could have been a little more blunt. Oh, yes, there it is, flat out asserting right in the first sentence, fraud, first sentence. President Trump participated in dubious tax schemes during the 1990s, including instances of outright fraud that greatly increased the fortune he received from his parents, an investigation by the New York Times has found. But then when it comes to proving or documenting the outright fraud, the Times isn't so forceful. Now, first, I want to play you how it's phrased on the New York Times Daily podcast. Here's one of the reporters being interviewed, David Barstow. And we've run this scenario past some of the best tax experts in the country, and every single one of them says, that's fraud. But when it comes to writing up the findings, the Times phrases it like this. The Trump's plan executed over the next decade, blended traditional techniques, such as rewriting Fred Trump's will to maximize tax avoidance and unorthodox strategies that tax experts told the Times were legally dubious and in some cases appeared to be fraudulent. And then at another point, it briefed a uh, professor of law at Florida and quotes him as saying that the Trump's use of the company was, quote, highly suspicious and could constitute criminal tax fraud, And they quote the professor as saying, it certainly looks like a disguised gift. So what we have in the words of the piece is the Times being cautious. And I get it. The stakes are high. The threat of litigation. Well, it's certain. It's right there. They they quote Trump's lawyer as threatening litigation. But I like the blunt force trauma of every expert I've talked to says it's fraud versus an on the record quote with things like looks fishy to me. Okay, that's really just an aside, because what I'd like to do is analyze the piece in terms of what will change and what it means. Level one, practically, whose opinion will change because of this piece? Answer, no one. There's an efficient market in terms of the public's perception of Donald Trump. His followers like him, not despite his tax avoidance schemes, but because of them. That is why Trump bragged about his prowess in this area. And they showed he didn't pay any federal income tax. So if he's paid zero... And let me say, just because Trump's followers think it's cool that he got one over in the law doesn't mean they're right. Now, another, I suppose, criticism I've heard of the piece uh, that, that goes along with it won't change minds is it won't change minds because we knew all this. No, the Times report is a stunning and bona fide expose. There are a few reasons why. One, it is definitely in the public interest. Two, even if Trump isn't called to account for benefiting from law-breaking. Perhaps there'll be scrutiny on the law and the enforcement of estate taxes and gift taxes, and that could lead to better enforced laws in the future. And three, just because we say colloquially, oh, we knew all this, we didn't in fact know it. We suspected it. There were parts of it we know. There were hints at the larger scam. We did know that his inaccurate brag that he got only a million dollar loan from his father was in fact inaccurate, but we never realized how inaccurate. For the record, it is $59.7 million inaccurate. That's $140 million in today's dollars. That's the value of the fortune that Fred bequeathed Donald without paying sufficient taxes. So there's the impact, but let's discuss what we learn, what we can learn from the article 
beyond the specifics of inheritance tax avoidance. And by the way, if you've got a few hundred million dollars in your family and an ailing patriarch, grat might be for you. The Guarantor Retained Annuity Trust. Grat! It's what's for dinner. Yeah, you know the scandal where the porn star spanked Trump with the Forbes magazine? That was more fun than Guarantor Retained Annuity Trusts. I'll, I'll allow that. But this is more scandalous because grats are legal. Maybe how the Trumps used them weren't always legal, but pardon the cliche, the real scandal is what the law allows. Although, to be clear, and the Times was, what the Trumps did was a lot of what the law doesn't allow. They mainly did it through a shell corporation whose job was to uh, buy refrigerators and boilers and funnel the profits, upcharge on those boilers, and then funnel the profits to the Trump kids, and it meant that they would avoid the gift tax. But think about how that scheme, all the schemes, pretty much add up to the person that Donald Trump would become. What was he learning as this was going on? That it's all a game, that the government is stupid, that the least honest benefit the most. And then there's this. What do you think would stop us, you and I, from committing these frauds? Step one, the dad with the hundreds of millions of dollars. But step two, we might say ethics or morality, but I think what would really stop us is that we wouldn't think it was worth it. We, we might stress out over being caught. It would occupy so much of our brain that it wouldn't be worth, you know, we'd only get 40 million instead of 80 million or 140 million. The cost of such a scheme isn't always financial or criminal because even if you are caught, one of Trump's brothers was essentially sanctioned and fined by the IRS. He still got to keep a lot more money than he would have if he had just followed the rules as they were written. The thing that would stop you, I think, is the anxiety, the worry. You'd be spending so much time fretting about this big, bold, illegal play. Trump did none of that. Seems like none of the Trumps did. Maybe Donald Trump started out as a sociopath or at least a narcissist. Or maybe this experience whittled away whatever fears he had. And so we get the brash, norm-breaking, lawless man in the White House. And he could definitely be seen in the young scion of outer borough power. He was getting real-life lessons in how the rules didn't apply to him. Jesse Isinger, a great reporter for ProPublica, was shocked by the audacity and the crudeness of the Trump family tax avoidance scam which was mostly about just lying about the value of assets. It wasn't that complex. And so here's what Isinger said to Chris Hayes last night. Yeah, I talked to a tax lawyer tonight who said uh, that he was a little bit um, shocked at how crude uh, all these machinations were. And he said, you know, uh, maybe they couldn't uh, hire, or maybe they were too cheap to hire good tax lawyers. Why do you need better lawyers? This level of grifter worked just fine. Do you see the lesson there for the aspiring con man? The con needn't be that crafty to be plenty remunerative because with Donald Trump, the rules never apply. And I don't mean this as a critique of him and what he thinks. It's literally true. So many of the scandals that he and those in his retinue have been caught up in are things that are against the law, but the law didn't really enforce before Trump came along. The Manafort conviction. He was convicted of acts and financial dealings and bank fraud and assisting foreign agents. And he thought he could get away with it because, but for Trump, he probably could have. He was getting away with it. He was dealing in an 
area of law that was clearly illegal that was just not enforced or crappily enforced. He operated with what he assumed was impunity. Foreign corrupt practices. My friend Adam Davidson has been chronicling this over and over again for The New Yorker, Azerbaijan, Uruguay, Georgia. The problem isn't that Trump broke the law. It seems plain he broke the law. America's top expert in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act when told Trump's lawyer's defense laughed. It's not even a defense, but it doesn't have to be a defense because no prosecutions are brought in this area. He just thought he was allowed to break the law because these types of white collar crimes go unenforced. Trump seems in plain violation of the emoluments clause. Guess what? No one's ever tested the emoluments clause in court. Michael Cohen's dealings, unlawful but unscrutinized up until Trump. The Logan Act, never been applied to anyone, but you can make a good case that it should be applied to Trump. Now, if you are a cynic or a Trump fan or wearing MAGA blinders, you could say it's unfair to accuse Trump because everybody does it. And everyone gets away with it because the laws are so rarely enforced. But the Times article shows that we have a bunch of laws that are written, and then we have a group of laws that are lived. And it is true that Donald Trump does not live within the laws as written, but those laws, as they've been enforced, of course, they've proved only tissue-thin restraints on a man like Donald Trump. The Times article shows that what created Trump wasn't just some low-information voters nursing cultural and racial grievances. It was an entire system that allowed itself to be ripped off by the powerful. And then comes along this man who benefited from the exploitative power of the rich and tells the poor and middle class that they're the ones being exploited. Well, as a man whose empire is built on the skirting of tax laws, you would have to say on this score, Trump is right. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Lemonhead and Beaker. Senior producer of Slate Podcast is Toe Jam. The executive producer of Slate Podcast, Old Leatherneck, TJ Steve, Pierre, Daniel. You know, you know by their other names. The Gist, spreading insightful news by the Schmierful. Oom Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.